0: Chapter One. Uh, there were, last night. This was just providentially uh, my reading um, for the day. And as I was reading this, I thought, Wow, this is a very good picture of Christ. So there's three burnt offerings that are talked about. He talks about the the offering from the herd. That's the bull. The offering from the flock. That's the the sheep or the goat. And finally, the bird um, that that could be offered as a burnt offering. And these probably denote uh, three different levels of, of wealth. <laughs> if you could afford to bring a bull, that was good. If you couldn't afford, you could bring a goat or a sheep. And if, if you couldn't afford any of that, you could bring a, a pigeon or a turtle dove. So that's, that, these are the three things that are allowed. And there's, there's uh, one thing highlighted about each of them that I thought was so interesting. Um, the first thing I want to point out to you is in Leviticus 1, 4. Oh, let's start in 3. So he says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So the, the offering from the herd, the thing that is focused on about it, Is the priest, or the man rather, would lay his hands on its head and it would be accepted in his place as a substitution for him. The next thing I want to point out to you is in verse 11, speaking about the sheep or the goats. Um, He says, And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. So this is specifically being brought before the Lord, to be killed. So not only is this thing a substitute for man, but is a substitute for man before God. And finally, this is just a very, a very good picture of Christ. I was listening um, to Eric's excellent message from this past Sunday last night. I was I was away on Sunday, and hearing about the. Um, the The beating the flogging with the uh with the whip, and how it would it would lay open the the one who is receiving the beating down to the bone down to the organs. look at verse seventeen this is the the offering uh from from the bird. he says he shall tear it open by its wings, but he shall not sever it completely, and the priest shall burn it on the altar. On the wood that is on the fire, it's a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So this thing is to be brought before God. It is to be torn, it is to be, it is to be killed, brutalized, but not destroyed, not ripped apart. It is presented whole before God. So a proper atonement, a, a atonement is it's a reparation, is righting a wrong. Restoring a relationship. So a proper atonement, it, it requires a sacrifice in man's place, before God, and it has to be a whole sacrifice. Not, not the, the runt of the litter, but it has to be whole and complete. But it is going to be brutal and messy. That's what a, that is what God requires in atonement because God is just, and he is good. And this all of these things, Christ said, all of these things speak of me. All of these Old Testament pictures point to the reality that's coming. He fills these pictures. These God is not... Do you think that God uh, needed bulls, that he needed sheep, that he needed birds? No, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and the thousand hills that the cattle are on. This is a picture of what was to come. That's what a proper atonement is. So that's what we're going to be looking at this evening, is the atonement. If I couldn't think of a good title for, for my message this evening, so the title is just the topic. It is the Doctrine of Redemptive Substitutionary Atonement. That's what we're looking at, the, the Doctrine of Redemptive Substitutionary Atonement. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 the rest of the evening. Romans chapter 3. Read verses uh, 21 through 26. Now, if you've been paying attention with the past few months, this is going to be very familiar. I think just a couple months ago, Eric preached on this, but this is the, the best passage to go to if you want to see the atonement of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith this was to show god's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus so we're going to look at at three things this evening the first thing is pointed out here in verses 21 through 23. Paul makes this, this great statement. Um, by faith instead of by our works, we are legally, forensically declared perfect, righteous before God. Rather than based on our own merits, on our own works, we are justified based on faith. Now the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. What the law could not do, Christ has done. And he says the the law and the prophets bear witness to it, but they're not the way you're going to get it. You're not going to get your righteousness through the keeping of the law but rather you're going to receive Christ's righteousness his legal standing through faith in him through faith in him the the question that you need to ask yourself when you read this is why why would God do this what's the what's the big purpose behind this i i love I, as i was thinking about this and reading it, it's almost as though There's one motivation that's so obvious, so clear, it's as plain as the nose on your face that it almost doesn't have to be stated. Why, way back in Leviticus, why did God give this sacrificial system? Say, well, to satisfy his justice. Why did he want to satisfy his justice? What was the big idea? There's another way to satisfy his justice, isn't there? Kill those who violate his law. Take out the offender. Why is there this, this second path to approaching God, seemingly? Why, why is this? There, the, the motivation that we're, we're given in Romans 5, if you recall that, is God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly the love of god is the un- it is one of the underlying motivations behind all of this is this it almost doesn't have to be stated because it is so so apparent that god is loving that a holy god he created this earth by the word of his mouth and from the dust he formed man and man having sinned and fallen from him Rebelled against him. He is still pursuing man, still pursuing a an atonement, a, a way to make reparation between God and man. He he's still mending that gap because of his love, his great love with which he loved us. That that is the you can't think about this idea of the atonement without we can become sometimes so cold and so just. Uh, kind of logical and legal when we talk about atonement. But it is motivated by the love of God. And again, I feel like I've been saying this every time I've been preaching recently, that I can't explain. I don't know why God loves you. I don't know why God loves me. That there, it, that, this is beyond my understanding. And that just it is a great act of faith to believe that God loves you, actually. Because there's no good reason for it. That he is his love is self motivated. He loves us because he loves us, and that's all there is to it. That is the undercurrent to to this atonement that he makes. He loves us. If he did not love us, there would be no reason behind the atonement, no reason to to restore the relationship. He is more motivated to rescue you than you are to be rescued. Isn't that an incredible thing? So that's the first thing I want to point out to you, that the atonement demonstrates the love of God. Christ taking our place demonstrates God's love for you and for I. So the love of God, it should be assumed. (laughs) Just from reading this, from reading the Bible from beginning to end, it is always God who is initiating restoration. God is always initiating the relationship. Beautiful picture. Um, So that should be assumed. The question that was left outstanding, and I love what Paul does here um, in, uh, I lost my, oh, here in verse 26, he says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I, I, absolute, Paul is Paul's teasing us here in this passage. He's dropping a hint um, that the Old Testament scholar reads and says, wait, wait, there's a problem here, Paul. You, you are you're attributing injustice, injustice to God. This is not just, this is not right, this is not good. You say, what are you talking about? Proverbs seventeen. This is also in my reading last night, and I'm so glad it was, brought it back to my mind. Proverbs seventeen, fifteen. The advice for the king is um, that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to God. The one who justifies the wicked Who says, oh, I know you're, and think about that, a a judge who says, I know you're wicked, but I'm going to legally declare you righteous anyway. There you go, buddy. Give you a pat on the back as you make your way out of the courtroom when you should have been going off to your death. That's not a good judge. How much worse a judge who says, well, I know you committed the crime, and I know you didn't, uh, but instead, I think I'll take this guy. You're free to go. That's not a good judge, you say. How is that just? How is that good? How is it right? And this is one of the great, uh, great arguments against the doctrine of the atonement of substitutionary atonement. People will say, "How is that just that God punished His Son for someone else's uh, for someone else's sin? Isn't that like divine child abuse? How is this just?" And that's a fair question, isn't it? How is God just in letting sinners off the hook? From the very beginning, and I, I know I've said this a million times as well, but it always, it strikes me as amazing how we, we have this picture of God that the Old Testament God was very angry and, and very, he was all wrathful. But in the New Testament, Jesus, he comes and it's all, you know, grace and peace. I mean, the very first thing that God does when man sins is he does not carry out the immediate death sentence. He said, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. And then he turns and he says to the serpent that her seed is going to crush your head. And you can imagine the devil's response, right? Her seed? What do you mean? You said, in the day that they ate of the fruit, they were going to die. Cain, the very next generation, what does he do? He kills his brother. Murders his brother in a fit of jealousy and pique. So, what should God do? What's a just God to do with a murderer? Smack him down, smite him. Abel's blood was crying out to God. But what does God do? He puts a mark, he puts a brand on Cain and says, Anyone who touches Cain, I will be avenged on sevenfold. Where's your justice, God? Where's your justice? Just track that all throughout the Old Testament. Noah, God spares him. The first thing he does is get drunk and indecent. Where's your justice? David, the man after God's own heart, a murderer and an adulterer. Where is your justice? Jacob, the con man. I mean, just follow the whole thread through the Old Testament. God is always showing love. He's always showing mercy. But the big question, the open question, is when is God ever going to do his justice thing? When is God ever going to set things to right? Where is your justice? That is the open question that Paul is addressing here. And I love this. So how is it that it's just for God to pour out his wrath, all of his holy and rightful hatred for sin and for sinners on Christ? How is that right? How is that good? It's found in right here in this verse in the middle in verse 24. we will read 23 as well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, the perfection, the holiness of God. That's what sin is, by the way. Yes, sin is lawlessness. It's violating God's law, but ultimately the law is just a reflection of God. It is a reflection of His standards. The problem isn't That you've broken a law. It's not that you've broken a rule. The problem is you are not holy. You're not perfect. There are not good people and bad people. There are perfect people and there are cursed people. And there's only one that falls in that first category. And it ain't you and it ain't me. And are justified by His grace as a gift. How? How are we justified? I know He takes the payment for us, but how is that good? How is that right? How is that legal? We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. We are justified as a gift through his grace by, or through rather the redemption, the purchasing from slavery that's in Christ Jesus. This is how God can be just and be the justifier of the wicked. Because Christ didn't just it is true that God had there was an abundance of wrath stored up for sinners. That is true. And let's not miss that. I don't want to downplay that one bit. Because it is it is altogether good and right that God hates sin and hates sinners. Because He's holy. The only reason we don't think sin is as bad as it is is because we are not as holy as God is. But how how is it right that his wrath lands on Christ instead of on you? Because Christ redeemed you. He purchased you from the slave markets of sin. And when he gets you, he... He takes all of your obligations with you. He purchases you, and he purchases your debts before God with you. He he takes the whole thing, the whole package. And just think of this. Try to wrap your mind around this for a minute. The highest price that could be paid, The, the sinless man, the perfect man who walked in perfect righteousness, the one who never sinned. He never once told a lie. He never once was angry without cause. How often are we angry without cause? Not only was he never angry without cause, he was never angry with cause in the wrong way. How often are we angry with cause but in the wrong way? He never once took a thing that was not his. He he was never... Disobedient to his parents, he was. He was never. He never failed to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. That man, the perfect man, who never once sinned, the flawless man, steps forward and puts his life in place of yours. He he absorbs the wrath that is meant for you. All of the, I think it's, it's in Ephesians. I can't think of the exact passage now. Um, it, it talks about the wrath of God. It's not in Ephesians. I don't remember where it is. It talks about the wrath of God being, being on us. And it's, it's the idea of, uh, it's the same word that's used of a, of a mother hen sitting on her eggs, just waiting for, keeping them until such a time as they can hatch. The wrath of God God was, it's as though God was hovering over sinful men, just waiting. And this isn't malicious, this isn't wrong, it is good and right. He was just waiting to punish sin, because it's right and good that sin be punished. I just, I was listening to a podcast today, and there was a a former police officer, and he was, he was talking about a, a, a young man who had a, He had been a repeat offender. He had beaten his mother multiple times. He was a a drug addict, he was a thief, he was, um, and he had had attacked his mother multiple times, beaten her, and finally she pressed, they convinced her to press charges because she was beyond recognition the way he beat her and, and she was very badly injured. And he talks about him and his partner waiting in the bushes for this guy to show up. Is it wrong that they were eager to arrest this guy? Well, no. Because he was a criminal, he was a crook. It is right and good that he be be taken by the law. It was right and good that God be eager to pour out justice on the wicked. He is a perfectly holy God. That justice was just waiting to be poured out, but instead it's poured out on Christ. He, He creates a landing place for the wrath of God among men. He steps forward and he takes the full force of the the wrath of God intended for you and I. And he can do that because he he has taken you and your debts on himself. He says, that one is mine. I'm going to save them. I'm going to take responsibility for their righteousness or lack thereof. And not only for our past righteousness or lack thereof, but he's taking full responsibility, this is the great comfort, for our continued righteousness now. He has us. He gets us through redemption. He purchased us off the slave block. He pays for our our debts, and now he gives us his status. And not only does he give us his status, but he gives us his identity. He begins to transform us. He makes us partakers of the divine nature. That is a great and a glorious fact. The way that God can be just and the justifier of the wicked is through his redemption, through his redemption of sinners that he takes and makes saints, makes holy. He makes them set apart ones. He purchases us and he gets us. That is the the covenant of redemption, that, that God said, God the Father says to the Son, I will send you in their place. And if you take their place, if you will be their covenant head, you can have them. And Jesus willingly undertakes that task. He steps forward, he goes in our place, he faces the wrath that we could not face in and of ourselves. And he he, he covers the charge entirely. And I, I can't not mention this. I know I'm putting the cart before the horse. This is Good Friday. It's not Easter. But how do you know that it worked? How do you know it worked? This is a great transaction. But how... This is too good to be true, isn't it? That one man can redeem all of us through his death. How do you know it works? I'll, I tell people all the time, and I'm out in the street sharing the gospel, if I told you, you seem like a good person, so I'm going to die for your sins. You've got sins, and I'm going to die for them. And I jumped in front of a bus. Uh, they'd say to me, well, that's, that's nice and all, that's kind of you, but I don't think it works that way. You know, how, how do I know it worked? but well, we have a living breathing walking talking miracle working proof of purchase in the person of Jesus Christ. He ra- he was raised from the dead to prove among other things that it worked. The check didn't bounce. That sounds like such a such a like the lowest level of analogy. That's <laughs> the best one I can think of at the moment. But but that's just like the lowest level of analogy, right? He didn't, just, he didn't just write a check. He offered his own life, a propitiation. What is that? That is a satisfactory sacrifice. He offered satisfaction before God for us so that he could have us. Not only so that he could save us from wrath, but so that he could keep us for eternity in fellowship with him. So that is what was purchased at the cross. It was, yes, freedom from the wrath of God. But it was also an eternity of fellowship, growing sanctification. He purchased, you know what he purchased? Your complete cleansing. Your complete, he purchased your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification one day you will stand faultless before the Father. Christ will present you, he'll give you back to the Father, and he'll say, look, look, they're perfect. There is not a a flaw, not a blemish in them. They're exactly how you intended them to be, not because of any virtue and merit that existed in them, but because I purchased them, I took them, I gave them a new heart, and I cleansed them, and I've I've now redeemed them from every trace of sin, and I offer them to you, Father. Amen. That's what Christ did at the cross. That's what He purchased. The whole. So, so we we break salvation up into these little pieces. We chunk it out into parts, and that helps us think about it. It's good to think systematically about these things. But He but He bought the whole shooting match at the cross. The whole thing. He didn't just buy your salvation so you could. Wander off, and and being lost in sin the rest of your days. No, He purchased you, and He's going to keep you, and He's going to present you before His Father, perfect and flawless. That's what the cross did. The atonement. This is this is not just substitutionary atonement. Not just uh, the the term is penal substitutionary atonement. taking your punishment for you, although it is that, but it's more than that. This is redemptive substitutionary atonement. He purchased you. He takes your obligations, and he he takes responsibility for your righteousness, past, present, and future. That's what Christ did at the cross. Let's go to the Word in prayer.